Yeah, being measurable makes a lot of sense to me. I grew up as an athlete, and um, you know, if you're not measured, you count every rep, right? You don't not count. Um, otherwise, you don't know what you're doing, how much you're lifting, how many flips you're doing, how many reps you're doing, how fast your mile is, and so forth, depending on the sport. So I think just instinct from being raised in a in a fitness environment, and I think when it comes to like corporate training, self development, learning, I think the football coaches. And the athletes and the runners uh, learned it all before the rest of us, and we're all just catching up. So anybody learning a mental skill or anyone doing, you know, something um, where you are trying to improve yourself in one dimension or another, we all take our lessons from the world of fitness. Um, so when we talk about emotions, there, there's a whole thing around emotional intelligence, and it's like, oh no, that's not right. It's emotional fitness. Because if you work on it, it gets better. If you stop working on it, it gets worse. Just like your physical fitness, your emotional fitness needs exercise. Um, it's something that anyone can work on and get better at. It's not intelligence like it's some sort of innate thing that you either have or don't have. Like that, that metaphor is not right. And so for so many things in self-development, the fitness metaphor works so much better. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Mental Purpose Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Lobos. Today... We're going to be talking about impact, creativity, and innovation with my guest, Costa. He's, he's like, there's so much that we can go into. And the episode could have been 10 hours long when you're talking about those three things, impact, creativity, and innovation. And look, let me tell you what we talk about because I don't want you wasting any of your time. Make sure you're fully invested in this thing, right? We're going to talk about, obviously, those three things, creativity, impact, and innovation. We're also going to talk about making your mission measurable. We're going to talk about how to make impact at scale. We're going to talk about leading with humor, the study of creativity, making sure that anything's possible in your life, reclaiming creativity in your life. If you've been stifled or kind of smashed down by school or your parents or society or your job, how to get it back, creating habits of innovators. And he gives us five different habits of great innovators how to come up with new ideas, how to co-develop ideas and test them on an audience. We're going to talk about evolving ideas, how comedians do it, how other people do it, um, how many ideas or how to have ideas to make you better. We're going to talk about staying with something and sitting in something versus running from something. And we're going to talk about that through free diving, which Costa also does. And then we're going to talk about the difference between stubborn and persistent when it comes to being innovative or being creative or coming up with new ideas or, a, you know, going after a business or working on a product. It's a really cool episode. Let me give you a little bit about Costa and then we're going to get started. So Costa began life uh, as a creative misfit using his imagination to spur havoc and laughter and occasional unintended success. And it really hasn't changed much over the years. So some of his adventures include work with NASA scientists to reimagine the search for life beyond earth, designing innovation tournaments inside of fortune 500 companies to seed innovation products, speaking at the United Nations in New York as a part of a TEDx event and working with a group of cybersecurity experts, uh, including one of the original creators of the internet, not Al Gore, um, to make recommendations to the Obama administration. And that's just the, the, you know, the, the very basics of the who's who. And look, the, the, he's doing impactful work with students and young entrepreneurs and nonprofit organizations. And 
He co-founded this company called Innovation Bound and has joined a team of academics and entrepreneurs and consultants and other creative and innovative experts that help accelerate innovation efforts in science, business, and beyond. And I thought, man, when I got his one sheet, I was so damn excited. So check it out. In addition to that, he's also a free diver, diving to depths of 100 feet. It's pretty crazy. Look, this, this episode is awesome. You're going to learn so much from it. And before we get started, remember, if you haven't yet joined our Mental Purpose community on Facebook, please do that. We are growing. We have a free giveaway called the Purpose Driven Formula, a little mini course and ebook. Love to get that to you. Um, we have a retreat coming up at the beginning of November, and our D&D Mastermind is kicking, and it is so damn good. We're going over finding your purpose, your mission, your vision, understanding who you are, evolving yourself to be the best man husband, father, and leader in your business that you possibly can. So we appreciate you listening. Enjoy. All right, my friend, let's get rocking and rolling here. So dude, so much to talk about. Actually, the first thing that I want to bring up for, for just our men on purpose community members and our mastermind members that have gone through our VMP process, which is our vision mission person that equals your purpose, right? I love that your one sheet that came over to me says, Basically, your mission is to teach a million people how to use their creativity to solve their toughest and most important challenges. I've never seen anybody do that. And I've never seen anybody put one on a one sheet for one. And two, I've never seen anybody put one that has a quantification to it. Most people yeah. have their business. Their business has quantification and metrics. Yet the same thing that I teach with our mission statements, even the personal ones, is how many, how long, how many years, what's the impact that you're having to know whether you're actually on track or not. So actually, dude, I want to start out with that. How did you, why did you put a quantification on this mission state, this, this mission, whatever, it's your goal? Yeah, so um, yeah, being measurable makes a lot of sense to me. I grew up as an athlete and um, you know, if you're not measured, you count every rep, right? You don't not count. Um, otherwise, you don't know what you're doing, how much you're lifting, how many flips you're doing, how many reps you're doing, how fast your mile is, and so forth, depending on the sport. So I think just instinct from being raised in a in a fitness environment. And I think when it comes to like corporate training, self-development, learning, I think the football coaches and the athletes and the runners uh, learned it all before the rest of us, and we're all just catching up. So anybody sure. learning a mental skill or anyone doing, you know, something um, where you are trying to improve yourself in one dimension or another, we all take our lessons from the world of fitness. Um, so when we talk about emotions, there, there's a whole thing around emotional intelligence and it's like, oh no, that's not right. It's emotional fitness because if you work on it, it gets better. If you stop working on it, it gets worse. Just like your physical fitness, your emotional fitness needs exercise. Um, it's something that anyone can work on and get better at. It's not intelligence. Like it's some sort of innate thing that you either have or don't have like that. That metaphor is not right. And so for so many things in self-development, the fitness metaphor works so much better. Um, I've never, I've never heard anybody yeah. put it like that. It, it, it is fitness, man. It's, it's not intelligence because mm -hmm. you, you, it's not like something you're born with or you're not, or you can develop or you can't, or you're it's innate or not. Like if you're not working on yourself in, in, in our world, in the MOP world, we, we talk about this all the time, your life, your business, your marriage, your money, your whatever, it all grows to the extent that you do. 
And if you aren't working on you, the man, and for you women listening, you the woman, if you're not working on you, you cannot possibly expect for any of those other things to change because you're the common variable in all of it and you haven't changed. So how it has to be fitness. So if you want to run a marathon, you don't lace up the night of the day of the marathon and go, I hope this works. You train and you train and you train and you get better and you start with a buying shoes, right? And then you start with a quarter mile, then a mile, then five miles. And then you get into some real hard shit at like 14 miles and you kind of can't break through for two months and you break through and then you're on your way up. That's what you're talking about. That's so cool. Absolutely. And, and oftentimes it's, it's scary to put a metric on the, at that sort of mission level for something. Um, the, and the number 1 million can be real scary, but we have the like tools to measure these things now. Like I, I did a back of the napkin calculation for myself. I grew up doing gymnastics and, um, so we'd compete. And so in gymnastics, there's a handstand, you do handstands, um, to practice, but they're also a part of all the other skills you do. So you swing from a handstand back to a handstand with parallel bars. You swing through a handstand every time you go around the high bar. Uh, my hand here is a gymnast yeah. swinging around the high bar. Sorry, but there was all kinds of hand signals from the sport. So you, you go through a handstand or you hold one for all kinds of other skills in gymnastics um, at the end of a pommel horse routine, um, et cetera. And I was just back then the napkin. I was like, how many have I done? Because we do 10 in our warm-up and 10 in this part of our thing. And we do this much in our conditioning. We do this many on this. Wednesday's workout is this many. And I ran the numbers and multiplied by like number of weeks in gymnastics, number of years, et cetera. And I got to like nearly a million. Oh, like, wow. No, that can't be right. And I like talked to others. And so for high level competitive gymnasts, they've definitely passed a million at some point in their careers. Um, for myself, I was a little bit more amateur. I just never professional or on that level. Um, but it's possible that I've passed a million sometime in like my retirement as I continued to play and like do stuff. Um, but that you, you reach that number, you know, like for a quarterback, how many throws have you made? Well a over a million. Yeah, mil- well, well over a million. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, well, and, and, and it, it's cool to put a number on it. Yeah, Say NFL quarterback. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's interesting to think about it like that. So there's a, I think the programming in me says, or, you know, the, the societal programming, the, the old real estate agent in me that was trained to like double it now, triple it now, triple it again. And you're like, wait a minute, hang on. The thing missing here that I, part of the reason why I got so into personal development, a small part, it was still a part was because every time we, they would say, what are your goals? I'm like, oh, I, I want to make a million dollars. They're like, cool, double it. And I'm like, oh, two million? They're like, no, triple it. I'm like, well, six million? Wow. Okay, uh, that sounds amazing. And then they go, cool, create a vision board around it. You'll get it. I'm like, well, that's not, there's a big gap between a million and six million. Like, there's a big gap. And I always wondered, what's the missing piece of the equation, right? I, I love formulas. And, and I always thought it's, it's me. I, I'm not the guy that can run a $6 million company. I don't even know what the hell I'm doing. And mm-hmm. so there's that program piece of me that says, why only a million people do you want to serve? Why not a hundred million? Or is it a million for a certain period of time? And then you'll open up, by the way, this is not what we're meant to be talking about. I just was fascinated by it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, why a million? I think a million is, large enough to have a significant impact. I think when you when you teach someone how to use their creativity to solve problems, and when I say use creativity to solve problems, 
that's like the simplest way I can describe what innovation is. And so for my day job, I work uh, mostly with scientists and also with business leaders, and we design and run uh, workshops and conferences. Um, so one week I'll be working on um, building synthetic cells with the National Science Foundation. We did that in 2019. You know, a month or two later, we're working on using artificial intelligence and supercomputers to enhance cancer therapies. Um, that was the summer after. Um, we've worked on reimagining the search for life beyond Earth. We've worked on circular economies in Cyprus and Malta, which are island nations in the Mediterranean. Um, all kinds of different, just really interesting challenges that, that humanity is facing. And the scientists here are on the bleeding edge um, and they're generating innovative and interesting research ideas to potentially solve these problems. And so my job in the room, I'm not a scientist, my expertise is human creativity. So psychology, I guess. Um, and so my job in the room is to help that group of scientists think as creatively as they can across their different disciplinary boundaries, working together collaboratively um, so they can generate innovative research ideas and solve those problems. Hmm. Um, and in like 15 years of doing this, 15 years, a decade with scientists, probably four years before that with a nonprofit and another eight or so intermingled in working with businesses and corporations. Um, and in all that time, there's been this big realization that like innovation is not just for people with big budgets and shiny laboratories. It's for all of us. Um, and so the, the mission part is this, okay, how do I give back? How do I take this stuff that we've built when we get hired as high priced consultants or whatever, how do I take that stuff and make it accessible to people? So the million number for me is proof that it's accessible. So, okay, you can write a book, but if nobody ever reads it, well, I guess you didn't write well enough or you didn't market well enough or whatever. It just, it wasn't accessible. Maybe it's because it wasn't well known enough or uh, not interesting enough that people who read it tell others about it for whatever reason, you didn't kind of hit the mark. And so for me, the mark is like, if it goes past a million, great. But at a million, I think I can feel good about having made that material accessible to people. Got it. How do you and let me... go ahead, go ahead. I, I want to add some color in that, like, okay, so innovation that costs a billion dollars and, you know, a, a bunch of shiny laboratories work on, we all kind of recognize that creating an iPhone, building a space shuttle, et cetera. We all get that as innovation, but what's really profound is the everyday innovation. Uh, because someone somewhere may have invented music once, right? But every song, every rhyme, every beatbox, every lyric written since then is where all the richness and value comes from. And so uh, the the initial invention of something can seem really glorious and, and profound, and it is, and we should celebrate it. But each of the incremental bets, everything we build with that invention is where all of the value is at. The internet was created by some small group of people somewhere and then maybe a larger group of people after that helped grow it. But everything we put on it has made it this valuable resource to everyone. And so what is the role of the individual? It's to grow your small business, to teach your kids healthy habits, to overcome whatever challenge it is that's facing you because the richness that you bring to the world through that is valuable to all of us. Um, and so like, I just want to elevate everyday innovation where it belongs, which is on par with breakthrough innovation. Like those are both hugely valuable to society. We just don't always glorify the latter, you know, the everyday innovation, because we think of it as like small for some reason. It's like, well, yeah, not at yeah. all. 
What's up, guys? I'm so sorry to interrupt the episode. I just need one minute to share with you all the new and exciting, amazing stuff we've got created here at Men on Purpose. First of all, thank you for listening to the podcast and supporting the movement we're creating for all the men in the world. Next, you've got to check out our new website, menonpurpose.net, where you'll find all kinds of cool stuff, including links to our podcast and the free Men on Purpose community. You're also going to find our new free purpose-driven formula mini course and ebook and links to all of our new coaching programs and products. Look, I've had so many of you ask me where to get started with your personal growth journey or where you can go to level up. So I put this thing together, this free ebook and mini course, and we're going to be talking about and coaching you through a really light version of our purpose-driven formula, which is our foundational formula. And for those of you who are ready now, we got you. Listen up, whether it's becoming the best husband, being the best dad, quitting that job that doesn't serve you, just understanding how to put you first. We've got what you need to align with your authentic self and find that true fulfillment and live a life with no regrets. Look, we're helping men with structure, support, and sustainability. That's what you've asked for and that's what we deliver. As we lead you through proven and tested curriculum that focuses on formulas to help you get farther faster. So make sure you go to menonpurpose.net, click the button to download our free, powerful, purpose-driven formula mini course and ebook. And while you're there, make sure you check out some of our amazing products designed to help you find your purpose, stop self-sabotage, and dial in your mindset, skills, and habits to evolve into the best version of you. Why? Because we want you to live and have the best life possible. No regrets. So, mentalpurpose.net, let's get back to the episode. I'm glad you, I'm, that makes so much sense. And I'm glad we, we, we expanded on this because I think a lot of people, especially that are going through our programs right now, are going to get something from a, a 10 minute explanation on this from somebody else besides me, which is awesome. What about how do you get into being the guy that comes in to help scientists with human creativity? Like that, now I'm now I'm yeah. curious about that. You know, I, that sounds like so much fun. Like it's almost like you're the like you're you're the the guy who just comes in and makes everybody laugh and 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 upbeat and like that's what i think about when i think about creativity of scientists what what is that what do you do yeah laughter is a huge part of it actually so as you increase humor you get more uh you get more what's called divergent thinking or you get more generative thinking so that if you if you're in an environment with a high level of humor there will be more ideas on the table if you're in an environment with less humor you'll get less ideas so those are correlated um so that actually plays a role how did I end up here? So there's an attitude piece and then there's the sort of technicals. The technicals were just, I was hosting a TEDx event in New York City and the founder of uh, this company that I now work through, No Innovation, um, he spoke at our event and he really liked sort of how we produce things and he was like, would you come on board? And for the first year or so, I was just kind of taking photos, shuttling supplies back and forth. I was 22, 23, something like that. Nice. Um, so I was an assistant. And then a, a couple of the other facilitators, they're like, hey, you've watched us do this a few times. How about you run this activity? I was like, okay. And I went up and I ran it. And they didn't know, but I'd had four years of experience doing training facilitation with a nonprofit. And so, well, that was really good. Uh, hey, come do this thing. Put down the camera. Let's, you know. And they started sort of grooming me up into the role. So for me, I learned uh, the skills on the job. A lot of my colleagues have master's degrees in creativity um, at the International Center for Studies and Creativity at Buffalo State College in New York. Um, so there's a, there's a long history of psychology that has studied human creativity. That's kind of what comes into this. For me, it was like textbooks on the weekend and like work day in, day out, uh, which is how these skills sort of developed. And then a little bit of natural inclination. So that's the attitude piece. So for me in gymnastics, um, one of the coolest things was 
the moment when you do something that you didn't think you could do or you didn't know you could do. And it happens for every gymnast. As a coach later, you get to help others have these moments and it, it's what lights you up and keeps you going. Um, and so for me, a really big one was um, what's called a Kovacs. So on high bar, which is probably my favorite event in gymnastics, you swing around a steel pipe um, and you swing around, handstand at the top, swing down, swing back around. And so in swinging around the bar, a Kovacs is when you let go at the top, you do a backflip over the high bar and you catch it again. So swing around the bar, let go, backflip, catch the bar. Really hard, really scary. If you let go too early, you land on your stomach or your head on the bar, it hurts, it's bad. Like You, you really need to like not do it wrong. Uh, if you let go too late, you're safe, but you're not catching the bar. So there's this like razor thin margin of like where you have to be. And then you have to have the awareness to look up and catch the bar. Right. Um, and I was told I was too tall. I started gymnastics too late. Can't do it for this or that reason. And I'm Greek. So one of my energy sources is spite. And so I just kept at it. <laughs> and it took like a year. And after a year of training this thing, uh, I caught one, uh, which just was unbelievable in that moment. And that, that I think was the first time that life taught me um, this sort of one lesson that has been true and it's been teaching me that lesson again and again. And it's just that anything is possible, um, good or bad. Bad things happen in life, good things happen in life. You can do incredible things. You can block yourself from doing incredible things. Anything is possible. Um, and so that got laid into my attitude, my approach to things for a long time. It's been uh, what I try to show others and inspire in others. Um, certainly when we have a scientist in the room, it makes a breakthrough and like there's this big aha moment and then a literal light bulb appears over their head. That That's when like I feel I'm, I'm doing good work. Um, so, so from an attitude perspective, um, I think the idea that anything is possible, this belief has been a driving force. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when, I, when you're talking about that, I, promoting creativity, all I could think about was in school, like, you know, how do you promote creativity with kids who are in certain types of schools? I call them public schools because that was my experience where, Me too. And, and by the way, not, not like newer public schools that have like innovation labs and things like that there there are still the traditional jail looking me too and uh and and what i think about is a kid like me and maybe you too who was uh, like a little bit into other things besides the schoolwork mm -hmm. and i was not challenged as much as i could have been and i was bored and i just was not interested and I just wanted to exercise my creative mind and it was constantly squashed. You follow these rules at this time, at this desk, or you go down to detention in this room at this time in this desk. And for a naturally defiant person, I didn't understand that. And I would sit and, and, and Pat Kern, bless his heart. I don't know if he's still alive. He was a great guy. He taught me a lot. He was the Dean of discipline at my high school. And a lot of times I was in there alone and this poor guy had to sit after school in the hot, there was no air conditioning and just sit there and like, look at me. And I would, I would just ask him questions and my questions were legit. And they oftentimes bought me more detention. It was curiosity about why am I here? I'm in detention, sir. I'm in detention. Can you answer me a question? Like I'm in detention because I asked 
for clarification on something, it's a school. And I mean, sir, I'm, I'm in, I'm in class. I'm in detention because the teacher said, do it this way. And I'm the one that thought it could be done a different way. So I'm in trouble because I tried to innovate and I never, luckily they didn't get me down yet in my dad's business and the shipping business. All I wanted to do was be creative and innovative in my real estate business. I started losing the love for it because all I wanted to do was just build and be creative and build houses and, and rehab houses and not just go out and go to listing appointments and sell real estate. How do you, how do you, I think it's like twofold question. How can parents ensure that their kids are being innovative if they're in one of those situations where they're squashed and two, how can adults who were those kids who were squashed innovation and creativity wise, how can they tap back into that now? Cause there's so yes, many adults yeah. that squashed. These are great here. questions. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. In a room full of people, if I ask people who thinks of themselves as creative, just a show of hands. It's always a sad amount of people. Um, oh, less really? Than half for sure. Yeah. In, in like a typical room of people at a random event, yeah, less than half will think of themselves as creative. Um, so, so a couple things. Um, one of the, so I, I cannot reform uh, higher education from where I sit on this podcast. And so I don't, I don't know that ideas that I have, you know, are, are some sort of, um, Key just to the solution education. Just your experience. There are people yeah, going to yeah, write yeah. me and go, oh, I had an amazing time. I'm a doctor too. I went to public yeah. school. I'm like, Good for you. This is just yeah. my tale and, and uh -huh. this is tale. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm acknowledging that like the, the problem is big. Like it's a yeah. really big, interesting challenge. And education will improve over time. We will make progress. It's probably yeah. going to be nonlinear. It's not like every year test scores will go up. Now it's going to like zigzag and yeah. there'll be something horrible and then there'll be big changes and that'll improve and it'll get bad again. So that's the flavor of challenge this is. And challenges come in different flavors. Um, some it's just like breakthrough and then it takes off. Yeah. Others are incremental and linear and consistent. This one is one of those jagged lines. Like it's going to take a lot and this system's going to change and our society is going to change. We're going to have to reform education again. It's like one of those. Um, I think there are specific things you could do. So one of the roles of education is to teach us discipline and critical thinking. Those are important things. Being able to be disciplined allows you to make progress on something and to focus on something. Um, critical thinking allows you to, when there's a situation where there's one correct answer, to try and figure out what it is. Uh, then there are all those situations where there is no right answer. Like, what's the best music? Well, there's lots of different kinds of music. Some are better than others, sure. It doesn't matter. Like, that's the point is the diversity in it. Um, you know, and same thing for so many other things. How, you know, what's the right way to approach growing your business? right way there's a there are many uh which one's most motivating to you which one's going to get you the most customers fastest which one takes the least risk which one is most conducive to your brand which one you know there are a lot of considerations there's no one right answer um and so that's where creativity shines um how do you do it so habits um this is absolutely about habits uh you th this isn't something where you could tap into it and you have it forever there are those things um, the mammalian diving reflex is one of those. You can experience this like aquatic adaptation superpower that you have in one day. And it's awesome. Uh, free diving. I will make a plug here and we can come back to it if you want. Um, but then there are things where like, it's about the habit. It's about incrementally developing the skill uh, and the capabilities over time. So creativity is a word we use to describe a set of skills that we use um, to bring new and useful things into the world.
So when we use the word innovation, the word creativity, when we talk about a product, like a goal, an outcome, uh, a mission achieved, we talk about that was really creative or that was really innovative. What we're saying is it's new and useful. If it's just new, it's a novelty. If it's just useful, well, it's useful, it's valuable. We call it useful, valuable. We don't use the word creative until there's a novelty or a newness element and a value element. Hmm. So when we're producing those things, it takes a certain set of resources, skills, et cetera, to produce those outcomes. So creative, the noun is something new and valuable. Creativity, the verb or the ability to, to create the verb is about creating new and useful outcomes. Those are some simple definitions. And so under creativity of a variety of skills, I teach an innovation one-on-one course. We focus on five habits of great innovators. The first is come up with lots of ideas. Picasso had like 40,000 works of art in his life, which comes out to like two per day or something mad like that. Um, da Vinci filled up notebooks and notebooks and notebooks of his ideas. Um, there are just example, examples after examples after examples of great innovators who came up with lots of ideas. There's a technical reason this is true. There's some psychology research around it. And it sums up to three factors. First is, if you come up with five ideas for how to solve a problem, that's all you'll have, those five to choose from. If you come up with 50, you'll have 50 things to choose from. So the statistics on is there a good idea in there just go up. That's the level one analysis. Then you go up a notch. And this one gets interesting, and let's do a demonstration. So if you throw three fingers up, and you think of three different superpowers. And if you're listening, you can follow along. Uh, so Ian, as soon as you have three ideas for superpowers, just uh, give me a nod and then yep. exercise. You got three, okay. Yep. So don't tell me, don't tell me. Okay. So uh, flying, super speed, super strength. If I name one, put a finger down. So flying, super speed, super strength, uh, reading minds, communicating telepathically, walking through walls, climbing on walls, uh, super intelligence, uh, breathing underwater, um, uh, time travel or controlling time, and uh, controlling elements, fire, wind, water, et cetera. Okay, what did I miss? Um, I was just, I was thinking about like a superpower that I would want, like insane yeah. memory and recall. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So you got, so that's a, a one on a three. So the idea is that when you ask the human mind, when you ask the brain a question, it reaches for easy answers. And so the, in the case of superpowers, it's like, what did I see recently in a Marvel movie? What did yeah. I read in a comic book as a kid? You know, and in different cultures, they're different because you have different superheroes in different cultures, but you reach for the easy stuff first. So the second reason that coming up with lots of ideas is a great habit for developing your creativity and being more innovative is that as you go, you get more and more novel ideas. The concentration of interesting ideas gets higher as you generate more. So your first five ideas are probably the most boring. It's like, what? We've all been working on like subpar solutions for all the creative challenges we have. Because we stop at like three, four ideas. Oh, that idea is good enough. Let's try that. You're, you're constantly getting good enough if you keep going with one of the first ideas you generate. It's like, no, yeah. sit down, generate a hundred, generate 150 ideas. Like if you're starting a business, really want to be an entrepreneur, you know, this is your route. You've tried two different things. They didn't work. Sit down and generate 150 different business ideas or more. So uh, let me ask you something mm -hmm. real quick. How do you know, how do you know when you're, when you're just like, when you're just 
spinning your wheels and you're and you're almost avoiding dealing with taking action and getting started by just coming up with ideas. And I, and I have a reason I'm asking that because I'm a writer, right? Not a writer in terms of like creative writing. I'm a, I'm a mapper, right? So like when I die, they're going to find thousands of pages in journals and thousands of, of word docs with just my ideas on it, just this idea. And then I'll, I'll I know where they are. I it's like, I have an eidetic memory to know where all my stuff is, where it is in my computer, in my house, in my bag. And I'll hit this idea and I'll go, Oh, it's in that yellow journal. Oh, it's in that orange one from 2020. And so my coaches have said, you gotta stop refining and innovating and being creative and just get something out there. So how do you know when it's avoidance and how do you know when it's necessary? Yeah, absolutely. So you shouldn't be scared to co-develop something with an audience. If you're building a product for an audience, involve them. Um, so you don't have to you know, do it all in a closet on your own. You can expose your ideas to the world and they'll give you feedback. So habit two is use feedback to improve ideas. Um, and so, um, so that's one. They're also like, you can time box things. It's like, if you're an entrepreneur and you want to be successful and you're disciplined, like good, generate 150 ideas and give yourself two weeks to do it or three weeks, whatever you want, just time box it. Say, okay, now it's time to choose and then choose and move forward and, you know, leave behind that part of your process. Um, another thing is, um, what was number two, by the way, you can time box things. Oh, so number one was come up with ideas. Oh, the, the habits. Yeah. Come up with lots of ideas, use feedback to improve ideas, Got it. ask the right questions, uh, test early and often. And even when you do all that and you go to implement, be ready to improvise and adapt. What was the fourth one? Test early and often. Got it. Yeah. So, uh, if you're talking about like, um, when ideas take over and you're ideating and you're not getting to doing stuff or you're sitting there refining a long time, and you're not taking action. Um, I think there's a few things you can time box it. So you can put on a calendar and say, okay, this part is for, you know, brainstorming. And then when it comes time to take action, I have to, there's my deadline. So you can, yeah. you can take a disciplined approach and time box the, um, the, uh, uh, the refining process. Um, another thing you can do, this was what I ended up doing. I just liked variety. So I was working on so many things at once. I was like, I need to focus. And I kept thinking I needed to do less. And then, uh, it just hit me. I was sitting on a couch thinking about this and I was like, Oh, I can just finish things. It's like, okay, if my mind wants to work on a lot of things. That's okay. Cool. I'm okay with that part of my personality, but I should finish stuff. I can't leave a bunch of things unfinished. I'm not okay with that. That's not who I am or what I want to be like, I want the credibility that I get things done. So cool. I want to work on five things. That's fine. I got to finish five things. Um, and I just happened to be in the middle of a book on JavaScript. So I, I'm a coder. I taught myself how to code, never did it full time, but I've always used it, built my website, things like that. And I was at like, I don't know, 50 pages into book one of a six book series on JavaScript and the books get thicker as you go. <laughs> I was like, damn it. And that was my test. And I managed to get through all six books and my JavaScript was really good for like a year or two languages change over time in programming. Yeah. So, you know, there's a, uh, there's a time limit to how long the skills last, but, uh, but I was really good at JavaScript for that time, finished that project, moved on to the next things. And I got into finishing things. Um, you can finish small. If you have a project and you've been working on it for years and it's going nowhere, turn it into a case study, write how it went, write what you learned, publish the case study, put the thing on the shelf done. 
and then go to the next thing. So that's the one I chose. I like the habit of finishing things. If you like working on a lot of different things, great, work on a lot of different things. Just finish them. Get into a habit of finishing. Um, and then, so, and then good old focus. If you want to, you can cut stuff out and focus on one thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, so run these. So the five habits of mm -hmm. innovation, right? What do you call them? I, I call them the, the five foundational habits of great innovators, which is probably too wordy, but they're the five things you need to do if you're going to innovate. And so in plain English, ask the right questions, get to the root cause of the problem. To generate lots of ideas for solutions, because among lots and lots of ideas, there'll be some really creative ones. And those Got are it. the ones that are the st standard chance of winning, come up with lots of ideas. Use feedback to improve your ideas. Uh, no baby idea is perfect out the bat. They all require feedback. Uh, be gentle with that feedback at first, and then be more challenging with that feedback as you go. Again, like a baby. You don't give it the big, harsh, crazy, you know machine gun worth of feedback right up front. Right. That's not going to work gentle at first. And then you get, you go further down the line with harsher feedback. Um, so that's feedback to improve ideas, test early and often, uh, as soon as it's relevant to do a test, do a test and then keep testing. If your problem is, I want to get my nephew the best birthday present he's ever had. And he's big into gaming and you're thinking you're going to buy him a ticket to like an esports event or something like that. Yeah. Well, you might want to find out like, is he into that? Does he like gaming at home or? Would he be right. into going to an event like that? You might, you know, sneak a phone call to one of his friends or his mom or something and find out if, if that's the kind of thing he might like. That's just a test. This is just a, a birthday present or whatever. Um, test early and often. And then the last one is be ready to improvise. So even once you've deployed that new product into the marketplace, be ready to adapt. Some of the most incredible innovators are just adept at adapting. They just know how to make pivots and changes. They do it on the fly. If you've ever seen improv comedy, oh my God, they're like, they somehow search the space of everything that might possibly be funny and pick the funniest thing, like all in the flash of insight in their minds. It's insane to watch. Um, when I work with scientists, we work all day to generate ideas and pick the good ones. Like improvisers are doing it like that. So, you know, what's interesting is sometimes I feel like the level at which I evolve things as just a, like in my, in my world now, my coaching business world and building this men's movement, the mental purpose movement, I get to be creative all day long, right? I get to be creative with people's problems when I'm on the phone with them or on a zoom with them. I get to be creative with our, with our exercises and our events. Sometimes I think, and it's all in me, right? Sometimes I think, I'm innovating too fast or I'm evolving too fast. I get good feedback from people that are like, man, I love the level at which you, you innovate and like constantly move this thing up. And it seems natural for me when I, I go, okay, well, we worked, we worked 20 people through this thing. Yes. It's only been a week, but it's 20 people. And I learned shit that I didn't know. I didn't know mm -hmm. from those 20 and I put it in. Is there a, or like a rule of thumb or like a time frame that you should kind of wait for a product to just be itself and then innovate? Or is it like day one products on the market? If you learn the next run of that product, you're innovating. Well, like, is there a, is there something that's, that's standard? Not really. It's um, yeah, no, I don't think there is anything that's standard. Um, there are, there are insights that come from statistics. So, um, so when statisticians or psychologists or medical people, they talk about a statistically valid sample size. Yeah. Um, so they're describing some 
uh, sort of mathematically demonstrated you know, numbers. So for example, but parameters matter. So for example, if you're studying um, medicine, like an intervention, a drug, and you want to know if there are, uh, if, if it can cause side effects that are really nasty, um, you need a sample size large enough. So if you know the side effect has occurred and you want to figure out the rate, you need side of, you need a group large enough that you get enough occurrences of that side effect that you get a ratio. If you go until you get one, you don't know, is it a fluke? Is this one in a million, one in a thousand? We don't know. We only have one so far, two, yeah. three, you got to get up to some number. I forget what it is. Yeah, this is uh, this is searchable, but there's a number 10, 20, 50, 100, I don't remember, but there's a number where the statisticians will say, look, once you're up to that, you can say with 95% confidence that like, that's the ratio. So um, sample, so, you're talking about sample size is if it's a thousand, yeah. then you have, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, these days uh, with computer science, which tracking literally everything. Wow. Uh, they could just, here's the number. There's how many occurrences we have. We're tracking all of them. So that, that's another way. Um, time learnings. Uh, I, I think it's going to be really contextual. Like comedians, for example, is a really great category. Stand-up comedians. They yeah. test their new material all the time, right? They get up on stage to try something. I don't know how many different ways they try a joke before they go, eh, that one's no good. They might try it four, five, six, seven different ways. They might try it the same way at two or three clubs. Um, you know, it's just so they're not, you know, it didn't go out on a fluke the first time. Um, they're probably thinking about delivery in addition to the literal words of the joke. But that might be an interesting place to go if you're talking about human to human, like a coaching intervention. It might yeah. be interesting to look at comedy as a parallel. Yeah, you know what's interesting is I, I, I've heard so many interviews by Jerry Seinfeld, a lot of them on Howard Stern, and a couple other just other podcasts that he, I think, reluctantly did. And he would say, like somebody was talking about the science of his comedy. And, mm -hmm. uh, and they said, you know, do you think that you just got lucky because there wasn't the internet in the late 80s, early 90s, and that's how you got so popular and then you got a show? And he goes, no, it's talent. You know how Jerry's just very direct? No, it's talent. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> this terrible, terrible Jerry Seinfeld impression. Um, so they, they started digging into that and they talked about like, uh, being hopeful and faithful and that kind of thing. And Jerry's like, no, it's hard work. He said, look, I got so granular that I tested my joke out like 10 times and I tested out each part 10 times. So, cause Jerry's not just telling a joke. He's, he's crafting a sentence. He said, so I tested it twice at Caroline's, twice at the Comedy Cellar. I flew to LA twice. So five different places. He goes, I knew the, like the, the measurable of the audience on the West Coast is different than the East Coast. And the audience in Florida versus New York City, they're going to laugh at different points. So I need to make sure this joke hits in all five areas. So when I get to LA or New York and finalize the joke, um, um, it's the right word at the right time that makes that hit that gets everybody from all five places. And I thought that was so damn cool because you think, all right, you know, like if you hear uh, Louis C.K., he's just observing shit out in the world and then getting on stage and talking. That's how he it feels. But Jerry feels very scientific and yet very in flow. Yet there's so much science behind it. So. I just, I just thought that was so interesting how he was running his own science experiments for where to put the word the, 
or where to yep. put, you know, um, which which element is the funniest? When he was telling it, he was telling a joke, and there was a periodic table in there, and he said, "I went through every element, ran the joke in every element, and boron was the funniest element." And so, of course, I put boron because, like Howard Stern asked him, "Why didn't you put mercury or you know anything like that?" He goes, "Yeah, in Jerry's comedy." Mercury is not funny. Why would I put Mercury? <laughs> Mercury is not funny. Boron is funny. Yeah. So that's just so cool how, you know, we're talking about sample sizes and, and, and comedians and it just, it brought that up and yeah, I, I totally. totally thought that was so neat. So call back to the, the comment earlier about why you should come up with lots of ideas. Um, so the first reason is, well, among more, there's more likely to be some good ones. Two is as you generate more, you get a higher concentration of good ones. Three is as you practice doing this, you get better at doing it. So like th coming up with boron, like on the, f on the fly, that's more likely to happen as you practice this skill. Right. So there's this, like, there's this training you get over time. Um, and so as you work on it longer and longer, um, you can generate some really interesting things on the go. So, you know, what might be some interesting superpowers, like the power to harness political apathy is a renewable source of energy. Like, Jeez. okay, that one's a little bit new. And you could, you could do those sooner in your process as you train. Um, so, so that's the third reason. So here, Jerry's a great example of this as someone who's like refined his craft so much over time. Yeah. It's like, yeah, he's really creative on the first go or the second, whatever, right. because he's trained so much. You know, and that's the, there's a, I want audience. I want you to write this down. I, I learned this a long time ago. I don't know who it's from. I don't remember. Spontaneity is a conditioned reflex. And I love that line because, and, and there's a line from uh, Captain Ron with Martin Short in the nineties, really cool movie where he says like all this planning is ruining our sport. And he says something like, um, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to kill this joke. But anyway, spontaneity is a conditioned reflex. I just completely blanked on it. My daughter and I watch this movie all the time. And uh, anyway, spontaneity is it'll a conditioned come, reflex. It'll come to you right after we're done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, put, I'll just add it in. Um, that's right. But, and, that's, and that's true. Like the Jerry Seinfeld thing or, or your scientists, they're coming up with ideas because they are they're putting in the work. And it looks spontaneous, yet it's not spontaneous. Yep. You know, it, it, yeah, it, and it's a very, very, very clear distinction between, I think, good and great is the, it's the level at which you apply yourself to the craft. You know, yeah. people look at me and they go, why do you, why like coaching is coaching, right? And I go, no, there's shitty coaches and there's good coaches and there's amazing coaches like any profession. There's people mm -hmm. that put in the bare minimum. There's people that go overboard, the people that go overboard most likely are innovating something new because their time on task is so much greater than this other guy who's just scratching the surface that of course he's going to innovate. He's got 10,000 hours in when this guy only has a hundred in the yeah, same amount absolutely. of time. People, when I was in real and, estate, people would say to me like, Hey, you know, I, I, well, my friend's been in the business 35 years and I go, cool. How many houses did your friend sold? Uh, she sold 150 houses. I go, okay, great. Uh, we sold 150 houses like last quarter or last year or last two years, whatever, you know, whatever it is for you. It's time on task that really matters, right? Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, I can tell you what it'll look like too. So because so much reward comes after 10,000 hours, doesn't yeah. mean you shouldn't start. That's ridiculous. There's right. huge value right off the bat. Um, you know, that first house is value. Like yeah. it's huge. The second one is huge. Like, so definitely start whatever it is you're passionate about doing. In this case, the habit of generating lots of ideas, start. And I can tell you what it'll look like. So when I get a group of scientists, they, they haven't been through a ton of training. They're coming sort of fresh to our events. Um, and we make them generate probably 150 to 200 potential research ideas. These are one or two sentence research ideas. They're doing it on day two of their event. So they've gotten to know each other. They've sort of hashed out some half-baked stuff. Um, and then Friday is Shark Tank. So this is Tuesday on Friday. They need to pitch for funding. And there's a you know 10 or 20 million, million bucks up on the line or whatever. They're pitching for a portion of it. Um, and so on Tuesday, we haven't generated a whole bunch of ideas. These are big post-it notes, blah, blah, blah. And um, uh, we color-coded them recently. We did a two or three events. We wanted to measure. Like, we know this from our practice and from reading psychology literature, but we're like, let's go measure and make sure that stuff's true. Totally true. Um, and so what we measured is we color-coded the post notes. We had four different colors. We gave them a certain color for the first activity, certain color for the next activity, certain color for the one after, certain color for the final activity. And then what they do when they generate these research ideas is they then sort of, they crowdsource the rankings. They rank them. Um, we have a spicy category. That's where all the really, really good ones go. And those are the ones they ultimately work on and, and develop into research projects and, and get funding. Um, so we wanted to see, okay, so here's the brainstorm. Here's the generating ideas. Here's everything that went up on the wall. And they're color-coded for which ones came first, which ones came next, which ones came last in the, in the idea generation process. And then we wanted to look at the ratios for how many from each category made it to the spicy wall. So we did this measure twice. I don't remember the exact numbers for each of them, but on the, on the first quarter, I think it was one out of 13 that made the spicy wall, something like that. It may, might've been one out of 15, the next event. From the second category, it was slightly worse. It was like one in 20 or one in 14, something like that. In the third category, it got better as like one in eight or one in nine. And the last category was one in four and one in two. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, and that fourth category, one in four, and for the next event, we did one and two, something like that. I might be up by one or two. Uh, but the point is, when you first set out to do this, what's going to happen is that first chunk of ideas, there'll be some good ideas in there, and, and you can be your own judge. Like if you're an entrepreneur and your task is, I want to generate business ideas, or if you're generating ideas on how to grow your small business, or let's say you're already an influencer, huge following, how might I monetize my following? Great. Come up with 150 ideas on how you might monetize your following. I guarantee the last 50 of those are going to have some really, really interesting things that you're going to love. The yeah. first 50 might have some too, but the last 50 are going to be really interesting. And the way you experience it psychologically is you'll come up with a bunch of ideas and then you go, I'm done. I don't have any more. I'm done. You'll go through a lull and you go wash the dishes. And in the middle of washing dishes, you'll have six more because you relaxed. And so you come back right. to your table and put up a bunch of the rest of them. You'll go through a bunch more. And so you might go through these little lulls where you're like, I don't have any more. It's like, no, the very best ideas you have are on the other side of that little lull. You just have to relax, like do an activity, come back to it, um, you know, however you want to relax. As soon as you calm your mind again, you'll have more. Yeah, man, I, I get that. And, and, and that's, that's training in itself too, to know, to know when, like to train your brain to always be spitting things out 
and to train yourself to be ready for when those things do come out. I mean, I, I write so many notes on my phone or like little stickies or napkins in my car. I started carrying journals with me, little journals that I'll transcribe into a big journal. I got tired of transcribing, so I started taking pictures and I just made an album on my phone that has all these ideas. And then I, I started having my VAs transcribe them into a Google Doc. Then cool. now I keep everything in a Google Doc or like if I don't write it in a Google Doc on my phone, which sounds completely like, duh. If I don't do that and I just want to handwrite it because I honestly like handwriting, cool. um, then again, picture, and then it goes into the Google Doc. So everything's in several different Google Docs. So last thing while we finish up, I, I, or before we wrap yeah, up, I want course. to talk to you about free diving because the, the thing that I, I think about, the fear that comes up when I look at free diving and, and this is prevalent in a lot of things is when you're in the middle of it and you are starting to freak out or you're starting to run low on oxygen or whatever it might be, even though you're practice, let's take that element out. The element of, I want to get the hell out of here now. <laughs> that freaks most people out, right? Airplanes, yeah. underwater, tight, tight spaces. You know, you're a hundred. How, I mean, I don't know. How deep do you go in free diving? A hundred feet? I've been to 108, 113, something like that. Okay. So at those are my deep dives. Yeah, dude, that's 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 deep because there's a lot of stuff happening in your. I've I've done <laughs> deep water scuba dives, and I know what's happening in your body. Mm -hmm. Like like mortality wise, you can't escape. You have to be in it and train your body and brain to relax and calm, because you will die if you shoot back up to the top. And um. Yeah, you'll, you'll die and from 100 feet. If you didn't do a, a, a control descent, you'd you'd die. That's scuba. Yeah. Oh, well, scuba. Okay. So, oh, so free diving is a little different. Oh yeah, because you're on one breath. So you take a breath in. It compresses as you go down. It expands back out as you come up. Same amount of gas. Got so, it. Oh, 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 yeah. got it. Okay, okay. You're you're not free of uh, the bends. There are free divers who do like if you're doing more than 25 meters repeatedly. Yeah. then you actually can get the bends. You can get narked like scuba. Um, so, so there are some dangers. I don't mean to say there aren't, but in free diving, you take a breath, you go down, you come back up. There's no safety stuff. Um, Got it. Okay. So is there, so still the question is, how do you actually train yourself? Cause this is, this is in business. This is in marriage and relationships. Yeah. When people are in situations that they are uncomfortable in and they want to get out quickly how does someone train themselves to stay in and just be in it and move through it versus escape from it? Yeah, absolutely. So in free diving, um, so for those who don't know, free diving, breath hold diving, you take a deep breath, you swim down the water column in the ocean or wherever, uh, you come back up. That's the, the basic premise. So you're out there with a wetsuit, some fins, a mask on your face. Uh, that's the mode. There is no tank of air on your back, right? You're doing it just with your breath. This is the way dolphins dive, um, turtles dive, et cetera. This is the way marine animals uh, that breathe air dive into the ocean. Um, there is something called the mammalian diving reflex uh, or just the diving reflex. And it's a set of physiological triggers and responses. So the triggers are things like water splashing on your face or being submerged in water, uh, low oxygen and high CO2 in your blood. Your body can detect that. There are other triggers and the responses are Things like blood shunting. So the capillaries in your arms and legs constrict and they push blood toward your core. 
capillaries there expand. And so it increases oxygen delivery to your heart and your, and your brain, uh, your vital organs, basically. So it redirects oxygen to vital organs. Another response is that it lowers your heart rate. Um, and so tapping the mammalian diving reflex is, is a natural, like you can be taught with instruction within an hour, hours, how to tap that reflex. Um, and then with training, it gets even better, which is cool. Uh, but it is a set of aquatic adaptations that's built into all of us. Like you could have been born on the mountain, spent your whole life there, or born in the desert, spent your whole life there. You still have adaptations for the sea. They're built into you, um, which is really, really cool. Like there's a superpower in you that you've inherited from, you know, evolution and you yep. get to tap it. Um, and so nothing I say is training. Please don't go a whole breath holding anywhere. Uh, <laughs> I can't be liable from on this podcast, uh, but definitely go check out a class. And do a you know like a level one free diving class it's epic actually we have a, a corporate training experience that we created um we're taking business people out to do free diving um and what we're teaching them is the the t breathing techniques that we use to in induce the mammalian diving reflex induces a deep sense of calm in addition to redirecting oxygen etc drops your heart rate so your heart's beating slower um, and it induces a deep sense of calm um, and then we yeah, we're, we're, we're making that relevant to like negotiations, the yeah. boardroom, speeches, yeah, any high stakes situation in business where like grit isn't going to cut like this high energy, aggressive, like that's not what you need right now. You're in negotiations. Like you just be calm and focused and that's, what's going to win you the best deal here. Not like this lean forward, aggressive yeah. thing. And you judge for yourself when it's necessary and you deploy it. Like, I don't know. It's your business. Uh, sometimes grit is absolutely what you need. Uh, but sometimes it's calm. So in, in the freediving universe, we use breathing techniques to induce that level of calm. Um, and then you train it and over training, it gets even, you know, even more active. Um, my instructor trainer, he's the founder of the agency. He's a world record freediver. Dude dove to 400 feet and back on one breath. Damn. How it's long is that? is that? Like 10 minutes? It's like or a, repeat? No, it's like a three minute dive. They do it with a monofin. So they've got a fin. Um, but imagine a football field. Right. Like, could you ride a bicycle? Never mind walking. Could you ride? Right. Could you hold your breath and ride a bicycle across a football field and back without passing out? So well, like, probably not. <laughs> is that why you see free divers do the, those like really big inhales, exhales, inhales, exhales before they go under? I always thought it was just loading with oxygen. And as I understand breath work today, I now know what they're doing to, to flood mm -hmm. the, the body and like to put the, the autonomic nervous system into a calmer state. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's so the, yeah, the, the, the breathing we teach in a level one is basically relaxed breathing that brings your heart rate down. That's the first thing we focus on. The more right. advanced stuff they do in competitions, they, they do what's called packing. So they add a little bit more air to their lungs. They pressurize their lungs. If you pressurize your lungs, you can get an embolism. Nobody do that. This is not an excuse to do that. But the competitors do. They do it very temporarily because as soon as they turn and dive down, their body's under pressure, their, their lungs go back to a normal volume. So for them, it's an exercise they do. They condition themselves to do it. Please, nobody do that. But yeah, yeah they're adding extra air. Um, they do what's called packing, and then they add extra air when they go down there. So let's say they've got an additional like 10%, 20%, something like that. It's interesting that there's so many things from the sport world and the business world that can, that can go together. And, they, and it sounds like, duh. It's all competition in some capacity, but really it's competition with yourself. Like I remember in, in real estate, I would say to people, ease up, man, 
you're not negotiating against me. I can't make a decision. This isn't my house. Ease up. You don't have to be some like shrewd negotiator. You got to understand yourself to go talk to your client and get what, what you think is the best for them by understanding what is best for them. And I think so many people got so worked up and anxious getting into these situations. They forgot, they forget to talk to their client about what it is that they actually want, you know? Yeah. And I'm telling you right now, I think it's because a lot of these people in different businesses, different industries, they have lost the creative or innovative edge. And they're just trying to do something that they can, that they can just be themselves at, you know, instead of just a robot. And that was me. And I know it's a lot of other people, even in the coaching bit in the coaching world, guys who don't innovate their own products, who buy other people's products or just, you know, copy a program that they went through and then start selling it you're missing something. And, and I think there's a level of regret kind of like, you know, not spending enough time with your kids or getting divorced too early before you actually try and work on you. I think there's a level of regret that comes from not being innovative or creative enough, you know, and not exercising that muscle. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's, I think that, um, so to go back to gymnastics for me, the other lesson was never give up. Um, and, so the attitude of anything is possible speaks to possibilities. It speaks yeah. to, you know, when there's something really exciting, a huge opportunity, you know, go for it, try, it gets you to start. Then there's the finish side of the equation. And so if you're, if you're going to finish, if you're going to achieve, if you're going to give something your best shot, um, you don't have to approach your life as like guaranteed to succeed. Otherwise I'm a failure. It's like, no, no that's not healthy either. But, if you've promised to give something your best shot, never give up until you do. Um, that's totally relevant. That was the other lesson in gymnastics. It's never give up. Like just cause you fell off a pommel horse, hit your knee, banged your shin on the high bar, got an injury, got an injury. Injuries will knock you out for six months. You got an injury, sure. no reason to quit. Keep going. Your, your ankles hurt. Cause that, does that stop you from doing handstands? You need your ankle for handstands? Nope. Do a handstand. It was, it was, it was crazy how much we, we took that seriously. Like, no, never give up. Keep working. Um, and I think that attitude, uh, definitely comes through in the innovation that I've seen with scientists, with business leaders, uh, yeah, yeah. not a one of them is the type to give up. Um, I've occasionally seen people have doubt or be challenged, but among great innovators, I, there's not a one of them that knows how to give up. <laughs> I just don't know how, so, uh, and that skill you can cultivate. That's not a gift from anywhere. That's not an innate. I mean, there are some no people that are, it's may, it may be innate, like a very, very few percentage mm -hmm. uh, of people. Okay. How does somebody know the difference between like, since I was a little kid, I was really fascinated with the, the Titans of industry, the Milton Hershey's, the Vanderbilt's like the people that rock this world, right? The crafts, the Hormel's bird's eye. Um, I, I, how do you know, how does someone know? when to give up or not and shift to another idea versus continue to innovate and evolve or just keep piling away where it's not stubborn like what's the where, where's the break between stubborn and 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 um and like proactive or uh i'm blanking on the word you know what i mean yeah. like um uh -huh. persistent persistent and what's the difference between being stubborn and being persistent that's yeah. a fantastic question i don't know <laughs> Um, that's a really good one. Um, I can talk about, 
um, things that I do. So I try to get a different perspective. If I'm in a position where I'm working really hard and not producing a result, I'm like, mm, something's off. Let me take a step to the left. What does it look like now? Let me take two steps to the right. What does it look like now? I try to get different perspectives on it. So for example, if, if you're in a relationship and we've all been through this, I was in the past where like, no matter what you do, like I'm working on this, it's just not getting better. Um, it's just toxic for the both of you or toxic for one of you. It doesn't matter. Um, you, at some point you got to go, am I giving up or am I like, am I saying, Hey, I'm not giving up on love in my life and I'm not even giving up on this person because I want them to be well and to be happy. What I'm concluding is that the strategy of the two of us is probably a really bad investment for both of us. Um, and if I've, if I've given it my best or better than my best and that's enough, then yeah, by all means, you know, exit the relationship, let that person find love, continue yourself, leave some time to heal. You know, that that's probably a really important positive decision, exiting a toxic relationship. But is it toxic or have you just not worked on it? Well, that's something you have to decide. I don't know that anyone can make that decision for you, including, you know, your, your maybe therapist. Interesting. That's, that's on you. I, th I think that's like a personal perspective. Yeah. I mean, when you're talking about, have no data. talking about relationships for sure. I just watched a show the other day on, uh, the foods that built America, fantastic program on history channel. And it was talking about, uh, the guys who started dairy queen and the guy and Carvel who started Carvel ice cream and mm -hmm. both of them against every single person's advice who was making hard ice cream at the time, you know, like hard scooped ice cream. Both of these guys were like, I think soft serve is it. I think, <laughs> I think soft serve is it. Everybody's like, are you an idiot? And the guy from, from Dairy Queen, I forget his name. He even invented the machine and he kept testing and testing. And he said, and somebody said, how do you know when it's good enough? And he just goes, you know what? When I turn it upside down and it doesn't fall out, that's when I know it's good enough. And everybody's like, you're an idiot. Nobody's going to buy that. It's going to be too hard. Why don't you just make hard ice cream? And dude, this guy was so focused that when he did the, did the little triple, you know, blips or whatever you call them on the Dairy Queen ice cream, and he turned it over finally and shook it and it didn't come. He goes, this is it. This is it. And it's like Ben and Jerry. Yeah. These, these, these guys are, these, they're not geniuses. They just started putting larger chunks of stuff in because they had a hunch. Yep. And so there's a That's level flying. Of flying was invented by bicycle shop owners. Right. Like there's there's right. no credential that you need. There's no gift. And we, we went yeah. to the right memorial. It, it's, it is interesting how innovations come from a, 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 a a thought, an idea, a vision of just how something should be, you know, yeah. like just how this is how it should be. And, yeah. um, and a lot of times it's not the Harvard degree. It's no, not the person no. with all the funding, like probably no. most of the time, like, I don't know, like it'd be an interesting analysis to do, but like so many of the stories, so many of the innovations, they come from like humble individuals. Totally. You know, what's, I, I love the, uh, I don't know if you ever listened the, um, uh, podcast how i built this on npr fantastic oh, i've heard it fantastic yeah. podcast so i listened to i listened I, I drove to the outer i was on the east coast i drove to the outer banks and back with my kids and my mom and i was listening to a bunch dipping dots an ice cream 
product that revolutionized the industry. The guy was just messing around and he made ice cream with his parents when he was younger and he was making it with his kid and his wife and it was just an old pastime. And he goes, you know, he's working with um, freezing like seeds at his laboratory where he worked and they were using liquid nitrogen. He goes, I wonder what would happen if I dripped ice cream in. And he did and he made Dippin' Dots. And the guy, like, just think about that. Or or, or Siete Foods, which is a Mexican, Mexican-American um food brand that is taking over store shelves siete this is just from a a mexican-american girl who couldn't eat corn and and flour anymore and they she had to innovate and all of a sudden they're stamping tortillas out from with almond almond flour and all of a sudden someone goes oh hey we'll give you 90 million dollars to expand this company she's like what the same thing with laura bars by the way same thing she's just making bars for herself out of dates and almonds and somebody was like i think you should sell those at whole foods or i think she worked at whole foods and she 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 pinned the buyer down 150 million dollar exit it's crazy so yes i love it man great having you on thank you so much for your time this has been this has been awesome i i i think the audience and myself included learned a ton and uh really appreciate you being here yeah absolutely you're very welcome I think um, if anyone wants to reach out, reach out. I know podcasts are like, you know, this thing in the sky in the cloud on the internet. Where can they find you? Just email me. Like, I'm a a person. Like, just shoot me an email. What's your email? So, costa at innovationbound.com. And then if you're interested in, uh, I'll I'll send you a bunch of links. If people are interested in free diving or the Innovation 101 course, we put a bunch of links in the description. Yeah, let's, let's, uh, we'll have all those in the show notes. Yeah, we'll have all in the show notes. Uh, innovationbound.com is the website, right? Yes. Sweet. Love it. Well, dude, thanks again for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Hey, audience, thanks for listening. And you know this little tagline I've been dropping lately? I'm just feeling it. Be on purpose. Become irreplaceable. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next one.